Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, as the murder trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin winds down in the case of George Floyd's death, we'll talk with a former cop who's helped lead the charge to end the war on drugs. Former police lieutenant Diane Goldstein believes the war on drugs has been a complete failure. And she's got some very personal experience to back that up. We'll talk with her about the Chauvin trial, the killing of George Floyd, and this week's fatal and apparently accidental shooting of an unarmed 20-year-old black man in Minnesota, along with bigger issues like... What are police departments for, anyway? But we will solve everything in the next will. 30 minutes, That is a I big promise. question. That is a big question. But first, Marisa, let's talk about some other things going on this week. Uh, once again, schools reopening, not reopening. Gavin Newsom went up to Sonoma to sort of, uh, you know, say, hey, we're going to be reopening all the schools this fall. But he never said... Uh, that he was going to guarantee that. You know, there's that sort of, uh, you know, we should do this, we can do this, there's no reason we can't do this, everything, but we will do this or else. And I think that's making some parents a little, and, you know, a few others, a little bit, a little bit, antsy, let's say. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I'm a public school parent. I think if you've listened to this program, you might have picked up on that before. (laughs) My kid is going to be back in a classroom for the first time next week, the second kind of wave in San Francisco. Um, And I'll say, you know, this has been tough for everyone. There are no great answers. But I think that when we're looking forward to the fall, um, both what Newsom said and kind of got some pushback on and then what some lawmakers told our colleague Guy Marzarati yesterday when he asked them about this issue, which is, look, last year schools got special dispensation for distance learning because we were at the start of this pandemic. Now we've been in it for a year. People are getting vaccinated. The question is, what does the legislature do and the governor legally? Do they say, hey, the default should just be we're back in classrooms, which I think a lot of us think should probably be the default, or is it an extension of this distance learning? allowance, which I think politically is sort of a really, it's a cliff for the governor in a way, right? Because he's got this recall looming. And I think the kids and the schools is, is just the most visible example of where government around the nation has fallen down on, on responding to this. Yeah, of course, but not in every state. We do have, you know, a handful of states where the schools have been open. And here in California, private schools have been open, I think, many of them since October. Uh, and of course, you've got all this loss of learning, which is happening, especially, I think, with kids of color. Uh, and you've got, uh, you know, there's just a disproportionate impact on all this. And it's going to exacerbate some of the problems uh, and inequities that uh, we've seen already in, in, in education. Yeah, I mean, 
mean, like I said, it's hard. And I mean, to be fair, a lot of the schools that have been open, you know, have had to shut down for scares and things. But we are moving into a new wave, if you want to say that, of this pandemic. And with vaccinations so widespread and with teenagers probably going to be vaccinated this summer. Um, I mean, I know that the people I talk to who are most nervous are those with older children because middle school, high school, like in San Francisco, still isn't back, you know. And I think that that's going to be a real question. Um, and just on a personal level, these poor kids who have like missed their proms oh, and all so, of these yeah. rights of passage. You can't get passage. that time back. No. Yeah, you can't get that time back. And, you know, in fairness, it's, you know, a lot of people point to the teachers unions as part of the problem and that, you know, there's certainly some blame to be apportioned there. But there are some parents who just don't want their kids back. A lot, a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, it, depending on the school and the district, I mean, we're seeing you know, the school up the street from my house, I talked to a parent who said some half of K to two said we're not coming back. So I mean, it's it's a tough challenge. But I do think from a political perspective, the legislature and the governor um, are going to need to look like they are leading on this issue, or they're going to be continuing to get a lot of flack. Yeah. And there was another issue this week, the governor trying to highlight and again, all these things now will have some undertone of recall to them. The governor was up in Butte County signing a bill SB 85, that made about uh, more than a half a billion dollars available to help prevent forest fires. Uh, he went up to Lake Oroville, where, of course, the dam is very low, uh, and that money being fast-tracked now so that it can be spent before July 1st when the yeah. budget, the new budget takes effect. And, you know, I don't, I, this is a bill that passed unanimously. There aren't two sides to this, although now you do have Republicans like Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, saying, well, hey, when is the governor going to announce a drought? and some emergency like uh, apportionments of water, which of course is something he'd probably like to push back. Oh, water. Do we have to talk about water? No. <laughs> I mean, look, I think, yeah, the drought stuff is scary. I think that what um, I'm heartened by having covered, you know, the, this fire issue, as many of us have in, in our jobs for years, is that we're talking about this in April, <laughs> not in July. Um, and I do think that's good. I think what I'm going to be watching for in the coming months also is what changes with the sort of federal state interaction. We know that the vast majority of forests are controlled by the federal government in California. And so I think that having this administration that obviously sees more eye to eye with the Newsom administration could be helpful in that regard. But, you know, I think we all need to brace for another tough fire season. Totally. And I, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, a number of members of the California Democratic uh, congressional delegation reached out to the Biden administration and asked them to make funding available to make these federal forest fire folks, the forest fi firefighters, uh, year-round, and they haven't heard back yet. You know, it doesn't mean it won't happen, but clearly there is, because as you point out, so much of the land in California is federal land. They need, they need those federal firefighters, too. Yeah, I think resources are going to be a big issue. Speaking of it, um, before we go to break, Scott, big news this week, this pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine doesn't seem to be immediately hitting California hard because it was such a small proportion of our vaccinations. But I think the fear is that this is just going to buy, you know, sort of play into these vaccine hesitancy concerns that we're seeing really among a wide range of the population. I mean, we talked about black and brown people at the beginning, but there's a lot of people in rural areas, Republicans, um, you know, it, it is, I think, it spans the gamut, and it's going to be a concern once everybody who wants a shot gets one in the coming weeks or months. Yeah, totally. And yeah, I think less than 4% of the vaccines in California are J&J &J vaccines. The governor actually got one. Mayor London Breed got one of those. It, you know, and it's so important to keep into context what the risk is versus right. the risk of getting COVID. And, you know, the fact that people get 
blood clots all the time. They're not even sure it's related to the vaccine, but, you know, abundance of caution and all that. But, yeah, I think, like you say, the concern is, is it going to, you know, kind of steep some of these uh, conspiracy theories and, you know, just make people a little more wary of all the vaccines in general? All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by retired police lieutenant and criminal justice reform advocate Diane Goldstein. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we invited uh, this week's guest to join us as the nation is really once again focused on policing, including, of course, the trial of the former cop accused of killing George Floyd. Diane Goldstein rose up the ranks with the Redondo Beach Police Department, becoming the first woman to achieve the rank of lieutenant. Today, she's executive director of the Law Enforcement Action Program, or LEAP. That is a criminal justice reform group. And Diane Goldstein, welcome to Political Breakdown. Pleasure to, to be on with you guys. And just a, a slight correction, it's the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Oh, partnerships. Good. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> no, 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 no it, it's, it's okay. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, COVID-19 has, has had this tremendous impact on criminal justice across so many spectrums. And then George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and now we have Dante Wright. Exactly. And just inexplicably, it happens, what, 10, 20 miles from where the Chauvin trial is going on. There was also the videotape of that uh, police officer in Virginia with the Army vet, his hands out the window uh, saying, you know, please, I'm afraid to come out. He gets pepper sprayed. What do you make of all this? I mean, some of it, of course, is, you know, we have now cell phone video, but it's, it's bigger than that. What do you make of it as a former police officer? Well, you know, I, I think here's some of it is that um, even back um, during my career, you just start seeing the advent of video. Um, and I look at this as, as it gives us an opportunity for growth and accountability and transparency in many ways that we haven't had in the past. But I think it also calls into light of the over-policing of our society, and in particular, the over-policing, and at times under-policing of communities of color, right? And so, um, you Just know- Just say, say what you mean by over-policing. Sure, you know, the combination is, let's take a look at Dante Wright. Yeah, I wanna ask Floyd. you yeah, about that, yeah. Okay, um, Dante Wright was stopped 
because of expired registration. And then, you know, there was um, the technicality that he had an air freshener on his rear um, uh, mirror. Well, that's illegal in California as well. And that's what people don't understand. And so, um, you know, working in the legislation, I think that, that the real difficulty when I speak to legislators and their staffers is we need to be very careful of creating laws because when you create a law, no matter how benign, right, you are sanctioning state violence by law enforcement up to and in killing somebody. And so what laws should we be creating? This isn't just law enforcement's fault. Let me be clear. Law enforcement has a distinctive responsibility in this process. But this is also, we think that making something illegal and creating a law around it is going to solve a traffic problem, a socioeconomic issue, a mental health problem, a substance use disorder problem. Yeah, I mean, I want to ask you about that because it struck me this week watching the Chauvin trial, listening to the debate in Congress over reparations that the uh, policing and the violence of the state against particularly black and brown people is really sort of just the most um, visible and, and horrific way that institutional racism and, and our history of slavery is playing out. So just to level set here, I mean, are we expecting too much when we talk about police reform, um, when we talk about it as like a way to more racial justice? No. So and here's the thing. I think we need to stop talking about reform and start talking about transformative change. And so one of the things that is really critically important to me in the last 10 years of advocacy based on my my almost 22 years of law enforcement experience is we've tried reform. We talked about it. We've nibbled around the edges. It's time to take public safety. And and again, legislators fall. You know, I as a community member at times can be apathetic about being involved in local politics, we need to redefine what public safety means, right? We've abdicated control to the cops, the judges, and the district attorneys, and the legislators in some aspects relative to the issue of what does public safety mean? I think we need to completely shift the paradigm and rename public safety to mean or talk about in this aspect of community health and safety. Because what that does is it forces law enforcement and governments to go back to their constituents, go back to the citizens that we've been sworn to serve and give them a voice at that table to say, what do you want your policing priorities to be? But, you know, in some ways, that is really what was intended by the phrase defund the police, you know, is reimagine the police and what they do. And obviously that there was a lot of backlash to that. But there's also entrenched interests here. Uh, I mean, to do what you're describing means that somebody that has a lot of money right now to fund what they do is going to have to let go of some of that. Oh, absolutely. But you know what? We've been having this conversation in California, because obviously that's where I grew up. I'm, I'm a Mexican immigrant. I came in 
from Mexico City back in the 1960s, but I grew up in the South Bay, did my policing there, is we've been having this conversation for a long time. And necessarily is the people who defunded the communities wasn't law enforcement. It was our legislators. And let's just go back to Ronald Reagan and talk about the devastation on our behavioral health and mental health system, right? Let's talk about, you know, and, and, and Nixon was horrendous, but at least Nixon, you know, in the, the beginning of the drug war, recognized that we needed to fund substance use disorder treatment programs. Now, we can talk about, the, you know, all the other horrible stuff he did, but back then there was an actual conversation about what's more efficacious and effective and preventing or treating substance use disorder. And so again, is what happens is, and to your point, Scott, you're right, there's a huge criminal justice lobby in California. I've been, you know, for 10 years and, you know, been talking about it, been writing about it, been working in the Capitol, pushing back against the, as I call the criminal justice lobby. And, you know, one of the things, and again, this, you know, a, a big philosophical discussion, I personally don't believe that law enforcement should be allowed to lobby. You think about that we were placed into the executive branch of our government for a particular reason. We are like the military. We're the only other people that's entitled to kill people relative to the approval, you know, of our government. By the state. Yeah. yeah, By the state. We should not. We should really, you know, is, is the... The criminal justice lobby in California so often goes back to, hey, we don't make the laws. We just enforce them. That's like the biggest cliche. And we need to hold them accountable to that. They should not be in the Capitol in the fashion that they're doing. They should not be using direct or indirect taxpayer dollars to pay lobbyists huge chunks of money to undermine criminal justice reform. Right? Yeah. Um, If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today is retired police lieutenant Diane Goldstein. She's executive director of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP. Uh, Diane, before we talk about some of the reforms that are we're talking about, you know, in California and elsewhere. I want to talk a little bit about you and your personal story. So you were um, a police officer for many years and you retired, I think, in 2004. And three years later, your brother died of a drug overdose. Um, And it seems like that combined with your experience really changed your approach to this. Can you just talk about how that impacted you and and why you're doing the work you're doing? Sure. So um, my grief literally change the course of my life and you know our organization started out as a single focus drug policy organization that wanted to just blow up the drug war and we've evolved because we recognize that there's there's so many different components of the criminal justice system that we need to attack not just drug policy it's still there but you know having grown up with my brother we were very close he took one path, I took another. His path was also um, determined because he suffered from mental he- mental and behavioral health. He was dual diagnosed, uh, bipolar, manic depressive, 
and then self-medicated starting at a very young age. But back then is, is, you know, I think our parents didn't understand it. You know, the, the behavioral health system didn't understand how to, how to treat this type of issue. So I saw my brother both during my career, um, come into contact with the criminal justice system in a way that was incredibly harmful, but I also stigmatized my brother as well. And, you know, I've written about his death relative to, it was him moving in with me after being, you know, uh, a, a productive member of society and paying his dues and he lost access to his healthcare, lost access to a psychiatrist, lost access to his psychotropic meds, and he starts self-medicating again. And, and literally right when I retired as a lieutenant, he started getting rearrested in Orange County. And I walked into court with him, you know, retired lieutenant, dressed up in my nice suit. I walk up to the DAs because I'd investigated everything he was entitled to. I thought we could do this without an attorney. And um, went up there, said my brother's ready to plead guilty. Didn't even go to the public defender. I went to the DA thinking you know, brought in 20 letters of, of recommendations, had them ready to be placed into a, um, a, a drug rehabilitation center, the whole bit. And the DA simply popped open um, her book with my brother's criminal record. And 20 years before, he had a felony conviction for possession of a sawed-off shotgun. Hmm. And she literally said, no, I'm sending your brother to state, pit, state prison for between 18 to 18 months to three years. And it was like, oh, no, you're not. And I looked around and it struck me. And I had always been really involved in community policing. I ran a gang unit. I worked a gang unit. I helped people get jobs. I, you know, did a lot of stuff, but I never understood what um, a, a, a particular family uh, a husband and a wife who were like multi-generation gangs and, and had been addicted to heroin and, and had methadone, um, uh, always struggling to try to get it, told me one time that, that they said, you don't know what it's like to be us that has no access to resources or attorneys. And it's overwhelming trying to get the right help or do the right thing. You know, here in California, as you said, there have been a number of ballot measures that have passed to sort yeah. of reform some of these drug laws, make them misdemeanors, uh, to expunge records of uh, marijuana, marijuana convictions and that sort of thing. And yet we're also seeing these progressive DAs who espouse these ideas like George Gascon in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, Chesa Bodine in San Francisco, both of whom are now facing some version of a recall uh, yep. election. What do you you know, what do you what does that tell you? <clears throat> I think it tells me that um, the district attorney's offices uh, associations have too much power and strength and the police unions do because they have for years used the issue of fear of crime to prop up politically entrenched interests because because organizations don't want to work with the community. They want to maintain the power that they have. And, you know, it, it's, it's just stunning to me that today that, that we are still trying to roll back 
reform laws. So I was recently um, testified in opposition to um, a Senate bill that would have made a uh, an advisement to anyone who uh, sold no matter even what low level of drugs that if in fact someone died from an overdose they would be charged with um, enhancements and then there's another fentanyl enhancement bill in california that's working their way through it and so much of it is about propping up uh, and using victims losses. So I testified both as a police officer and as someone who lost their brother to a drug overdose and understanding the pain and the hurt. And it was the most horrific legislative hearing I've ever been on because the proponent um, had dozens of families who have lost their loved ones to fentanyl. Mm. And I could hear the pain in their voice and I knew how they felt. But I also knew that the law that they were trying to impose would save zero lives, would would be meaningless to prevent another death. Well, and something that you've talked about um, is is the idea that we've used drugs, for example, as as a pretext to stop people or or things like a f- air freshener or expired tags. And um, I mean, we have just a few minutes left in the show and there's a lot moving through both the state legislature this year, one that would make it easier um, to essentially decertify cops. Um, you've written recently in favor of ending qualified immunity, which basically prevents police officers from being sued. I mean, what are you looking at as the most important police reforms, understanding that this is part of a bigger racial justice story. Sure. I think probably um, one of the most important bills running through California right now is the decertification bill, Senator Bradford's bill. Um, I think it is abysmal that California is one of four states in the nation that does not have a decertification process. Just say what that means. So that means you can... you, basically, that if a law enforcement officer commits certain offenses, has an internal affairs investigation, gets fired, terminated, um, or criminally convicted, they can they lose their license to be a police officer. And, and so, um, the Bradford Bill also has is tied into California is a little bit different. We have the Tom Bain Act relative to kind of, you know, our own uh, uh, indemnification processes for state employees. And so there's a little bit of reform there. And I think that's critically one of the most important bills that that we need to pass. We need to hold law enforcement accountable and prevent bad officers from literally going from one agency to another, because right now an officer can quit and be hired by another agency. Well, I want to ask you about the, the flip side of that is what being good officers who try to intervene, you know, from see- when they see something. And there was just a case in the New York Times of a cop from Buffalo, New York, who 15 years ago had tried to stop yep. a fellow police officer from punching some black uh, a man in the face. She got yep. fired. He got promoted. He later got in trouble. Now she got vindicated by the courts 15 years later. But what are the pressures on officers to, you know, not intervene? I, I think I think that's. Um, a big part of the issue is the culture, you know, is that we have to give our officers more tools to say, you need to knock this off. You know, I, I, I can go back and look at 
my own career where um, I was kind of on the, the vanguard of the, the tail end of the first women in policing on patrol, you know, the kind of the, the last vanguard of that. And I remember having officers, male officers, purposely escalate situations that I had completely calmed down hmm. in order to see if I could fight, hmm. like deliberate. And, and, and the hard part was always, and, and I, I figured out I needed to do this really early on, was, no, you're not going to do that. And if you do that again, this is what's going to happen to you. And so it would happen one time, and then it would stop. And so we have to prop up the, the, the training, the, the, the ethical standards, and we have to ensure that from the top on down, there is a emphasis on the sanctity of life. And it doesn't matter whether that life is someone who's homeless or someone who's a gang member. Our job in law enforcement is to save people's lives. And, and so, you know, law enforcement for years, and, and this is an American issue relative to the drug war in particular, we've stigmatized drug users horribly, horribly in America. We believe it's a moral failing. Mm. And so the more we break apart those myths and we reduce the stigma and end it, the better off we're going to be. And, and, you know, I, We've made a ton of progress. You know, I'm working internationally and the California police or Canadian police to, oh, sorry, just <laughs> decriminalized all drugs yeah. or are asking for decriminalization yeah. of all drugs. But I like that. Ending on a hopeful note. We yeah. have made progress, yeah. Diane Goldstein. Thank says. you so much, <laughs> Diane Goldstein from the Law Enforcement Action Partnership or LEAP. Thank you so much for joining us. That, Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. That does it for Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinny Tong, and Erica Aguilar. We would love to know who you'd like to hear on the show in the weeks ahead. You can tweet your suggestions to me. I'm at M. Lagos. Or to me. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Send us some good ideas. We'll take it from there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 